From our offices in Media City, Dubai, I'm John Lillywhite, and this is the UAE Tech Podcast Expo Edition, a celebration of how technology is reshaping culture, economics, and governance for the 21st century, brought to you by Albawaba Business. If you're interested in sponsoring the UAE Tech Podcast, tune in at the end of this episode for more information. From a legacy of precious metals, my family were uh, very um, well known, you could say, in finance circles for helping to push for the re-legalization of gold investments in the United States to be legal. So for 41 years until 1975, it was illegal for U.S. citizens to own bars of gold or coins of gold. And effectively, my dad, from a wheelchair, even at the time, uh, lobbied to basically get this changed. And then my parents created the world's largest retail gold business, uh, eponymous with my dad's name, James U. Blanchard and company that they sold uh, a little over 30 years ago. Um, so my dad passed away, sadly, 22 years ago. Mom's still nice and healthy. Um, and I decided when my dad passed that I wanted to uh, embrace one of uh, his projects that he really believed in. And so fortunately, the founders of the project agreed, uh, the, the Turks, uh, father and son, James and Jeff at goldmoney.com, which was a startup. I worked there about 20 years ago and uh, the company went from about, you know, two, three hundred thousand dollars of gold to uh, uh, close to 400 million. I think today they've got about three billion in assets and I think they're considered the world's largest digital gold currency. So spent six years there. Uh, I pretty much ran utility. I was director of strategy, marketing, and pricing. I helped with the audits in the early days. I was board secretary for the time there. So it was quite an interesting utility position. Very, very grateful to the founders and the board and the executives there. So um, my wife and I uh, went on a few years later to create Anthem Vault. So uh, Anthem Vault is a simple way for people to buy and sell gold and silver, uh, custodied. Um, we basically had been a retail gold company uh, for about nine years. The story of history is in many ways a story of war and commerce, with the two often inevitably intertwined. Always a store of value is required. Land, precious metals, opium and spices, semiconductor chips, scientific know-how or access to information. Anthem Hayek Blanchard believes that the blockchain, and specifically blockchain protocols of the kind his company is developing at Harrisoft, can remove the distrust and game theory that has led humans to connect violence with commerce over the millennia. He points out that the protocol market has between two to three trillion in liquidity and that the keys to Ethereum are worth more than any bank on the planet. For centuries, accounting methods, much like maps, were fallible things. This is why networks of trust, family, professional and religious relationships were so important. Now, most blockchain evangelists point to the role of decentralization in keeping the government out. Anthem is different because he believes emerging technologies won't simply lead Bretton Woods to fade away. They'll go beyond this to remove some of the key incentives towards exploitation, fear, and distrust that have plagued human history, human character, and the human spirit from our beginnings. It's quite an argument. Anthem's own story personifies a key inflection point in the history of Western finance. 
He was raised by his adoptive father, the precious metals pioneer James U. Blanchard III, who helped restore Americans' right to own gold and also founded a rare coin and bullion company, Blanchard & Company, at one time the world's largest. Named after an Ayn Rand book and an Austrian-British economist, Anthem sees himself as carrying out his father's legacy on the blockchain. His contribution, as he perceives it, is towards a world which is more free, less encumbered by fear and distrust, and structured quite differently to the world we all live in today. I'm from a legacy of precious metals. My family were uh, very um, well-known, you could say, in finance circles for helping to push for the re-legalization of gold investments in the United States to be legal. So for 41 years until 1975, it was illegal for U.S. citizens to own bars of gold or coins of gold. And effectively, my dad, from a wheelchair, even at the time, uh, lobbied to basically get this changed. And then my parents created the world's largest retail gold business, uh, eponymous with my dad's name, James U. Blanchard and Company, that they sold uh, a little over 30 years ago. Um, so my dad passed away, sadly, 22 years ago. Mom's still nice and healthy. Um, and I decided when my dad passed that I wanted to uh, embrace one of uh, his projects that he really believed in. And so fortunately, the founders of the project agreed, uh, the, the Turks, uh, father and son, James and Jeff at goldmoney.com, which was a startup. I worked there about 20 years ago and uh, the company went from about, you know, two, three hundred thousand dollars of gold to uh, uh, close to 400 million. I think today they've got about three billion in assets and I think they're considered the world's largest digital gold currency. So spent six years there. Uh, I pretty much ran utility. I was director of strategy, marketing, and pricing. I helped with the audits in the early days. I was board secretary for the time there. So it was quite an interesting utility position. Very, very grateful to the founders and the board and the executives there. So um, my wife and I uh, went on a few years later to create Anthem Vault. So uh, Anthem Vault is a simple way for people to buy and sell gold and silver, uh, custodied. Um, we basically had been a retail gold company uh, for about nine years. And then about two years ago, um, we had interest from the European Union and the Netherlands assayer named Warburg Holland, uh, a gentleman that approached us basically saying that he was interested in gold and actually was our chief revenue officer, Austin Davis, at, uh, now and at the time he brought um, this person over to us, Yako is his name. And uh, we ended up licensing all of our software to the European Union and the Netherlands assayer. So we ended up creating a new subsidiary under our parent company named Hera uh, Software. And we effectively licensed not only Anthem Vault, but our team created a gold cryptocurrency a few years ago called Anthem Gold in the US and Texas. Um, pretty much just stood all the gold platforms up at this point as showcases. We really pivoted away from marketing any of our retail platforms about four or five years ago. And uh, we, we kind of recognized back then that we were probably going to end up becoming more of an enterprise company. We kind of thought it was going to be in uh, supply chain software and gold tokenization and things like that. But it ended up being more toward ransomware proof and cybersecurity because we ended up figuring out, you know, about a year and a half ago that 
effectively public protocols exhibit ransomware proof traits and being distributed networks, being protected by software keys, um, you know, metadata can be stored locally. So, um, you know, these are really cool attributes. So yeah, we really embrace the enterprise side of the business and, and it's really benefited us. It's, you know, thousands of times a bigger available market and uh, makes my life as a CEO co-founder way easier. So um, I'm very grateful for that. Well, that's an amazing story. So I, I want to ask you about Harrisoft, but um, that that you know, this is a tech podcast. But part of the problem is I'm I'm by inclination and training, I'm 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 a historian. That was my first degree, and um, so that part of me is like, no, stay away from the technology. The story is just too good to miss. So, because you've kind of, I mean, what's interesting about you is you've kind of got this 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 legacy between two parts of history in the financial industries you've got the legacy of 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 your dad and as a you know as a, a side comment your your name is anthem hayek blanchard right so it's isn't that an ayn rand book uh to begin with super cool name um and then you've got this story with your dad who you know goldberg and a metals pioneer james u blanchard helped restore americans right to own gold and founded rare coin and bullion company Blanchard and Company, once the world's largest. And wasn't there a story about your dad kind of trying all sorts of, of techniques and communication tactics to kind of force the government to accept the, the gold yeah. standard? Yeah, yeah. He was kind of like uh, an original, you know, Richard Branson, right? With the, the big gonzo marketing, he paid for a biplane to be flown over Richard Nixon, the US president's re-inauguration that said legalize gold. So um, you know, really gonzo guy. He was a paraplegic. He got into a pretty much a fatal car accident that he somehow resurrected himself from when he was, you know, just a, a teenager and basically did all this from a wheelchair. And um, he smuggled gold from Canada, for example, and basically hosted press conferences around the United States threatening the governments to arrest him. And he wanted to create a spectacle. They never did. Um, and I'm actually mentioned my name. Yeah. Anthem is after an Ayn Rand book. Hayek is after a Nobel economist who wrote about denationalization of currency late in his life. And my dad actually interviewed him. So in 1984, my dad interviews Hayek. You can see it. If you actually Google Jim Blanchard, Hayek, uh, Bitcoin, it should pop up. Um, and it's on libertarianisms.org's uh, YouTube. And basically they're talking Hayek. My dad asked the question about how to keep money safe, basically. And, and from not eroding anymore. And basically Hayek goes, we need some way to basically slightly keep it out of the government's ability to control it. And then he's talking about what we would call today stable coins. He calls them solids. And my dad even said, maybe we'll call it a Hayek. And we actually did a beta um, about six years ago of a gold cryptocurrency before we launched uh, Anthem Gold. And we called it Hayek Gold. And it was cool. We got some press from Financial Times and some other big publications on that. So uh, it was just really early to market. We were pre-regulation even. I mean, even today, gold tokenization is you know less than 1% easily of the entire market capitalization of all you know, crypto software keys uh, to public protocols. So um, yeah, you know, it's a very um, privileged background. I feel very um, privileged and honored about that. And, you know, it's a story of freedom, really. I'm adopted. My parents had to purchase me because it was illegal for parents to adopt children back in Louisiana if they were paraplegic because they were physically 
considered unable to have kids or parent be parents. And so I was purchased um, and basically uh, through an adoption agency in Chicago, actually Salvation Army Hospital. And basically, you know, the lesson is that freedom buys uh, or wealth buys freedom, but not everyone can be wealthy, obviously. And I know that you're in Dubai and it's home to the tallest building on the planet, but yet there's still poverty there, right? There's still people. And I've heard stories there about, you know, all kinds of things. I've been there a lot um, and you know, in the last year or so. And, you know, anywhere you go in the world, it doesn't really matter where, where you look. There's always poverty. And the reason why I view that is because all of our commerce is based on lying, cheating, stealing, and killing as the tactics of winning because we're fear-based, because we can never fully trust our records, our bookkeepings, our accountings, our contracts, anything we can't really fully trust. So we always default to zero because trust is a one or a zero, basically. You can't have 50% trust or 75% trust. It's zero. And the beautiful thing that Bitcoin's creation gave us is the first known ability of humanity to be able to keep a record keeping that was totally incorruptible and that we could always reference to, you know, irrespective of if it was the person that wrote the information or some person afterward. And, and this is a, a game shifter like we've never had before. I mean, it, it, it makes the printing press look like nothing in a way. Uh, it, it almost even makes the internet look like the internet. We had to have the internet to get here, but ultimately, you know, we're going to be commercing in barter. You know, we're going to be commercing with violence not being needed anymore. It, it's 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 no longer. It's going to become relevant to the game theory of commerce. I mean, it's uh, it's very exciting. I'm, I just hope we get to live to to see the day. So um, I don't know how long it's going to take us to get there. Um, hopefully, soon, soon, but. Um, I think that's that's up to all of us, really. Wow. So me too. And you know what? I'm not going to apologize for bringing history into this episode because I think you just exemplified how so much of these technological conversations are uh, connected to what came before, uh, just in terms of our families, but also history, and and can also help us kind of predict what we need going forwards, and also how kind of values, uh, you know, human values um, can shape technologies, the idea that, you know, this, you, you mentioned Hayek and this idea of finance creating a path towards personal freedom rather than a system of control. And that's been a thread running through several of our episodes. It's our original episode with John McAfee. He has a very elegant wow. quotation where he basically paraphrases a lot of what you just said. Um, I think there's two things that are really interesting. And I think the first is that that bridge between, you know, the story of your father and, and gold and, and uh, kind of uh, Anthem and, and, you know, the, the Ayn Rand and the Hayek philosophy, and then today uh, with Bitcoin. Um, so I think one question is, do you see what you're working on now? I mean, we'll get to Herosoft, but do you see what you're working on now as almost the extension of, of your father's legacy into cyberspace, into the blockchain? And then, you know, that's the first question. I think the second question, um, because I think you're, you're more than capable of dealing with both, is, you know, I did hear you talking about history in the past. I've heard you comment on how, you know, if you go back, back maybe 300 years, uh, maybe less, that accounting systems were a complete mess. You couldn't trust 
what people wrote down. And, you know, look at the, the silk route or the spice trade. A lot of it was on barter, on personal connections, on building up trust over the course of, of generations. But it was also on commodities. You knew how much a certain spice was worth. You knew how much gold was worth. These things uh, had a kind of independent worth that most people were able to kind of verify. Um, so yeah, just those two points, you know, the bridge between the story of your your father and the digital uh, networks that we're all working across today, and also the past and 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 how accounting systems have always, even up to our, our current time, to some extent, been fallible. Yeah, um, so I, I do view it as an extension. I mean, my dad really saw through the lens of what most Austrian economists, and even till today, I would argue, see the lens of money being at the center of commerce. And so needing this idea of sound money in order to have sound commerce, quote unquote, with sound basically being something that you could rely on, basically reliable, effectively trustworthy, effectively. I view there being a fatal flaw with the concept of us relying on money um, in the sense that money by, by default is really a third party proxy of value. I mean, it's effectively we as humans in consensus ascribe extraordinary value to some thing, ultimately, typically, it could be digital, you know, usually had been physical, and we ascribe extraordinary value to it. It could be sticks, it could be salt, it could be gold, it could be real estate, it could be US treasuries, it could be anything. But all of these uh, forms of money that we've had are ultimately have to be defined somehow. There's some kind of consensus that has to be defined somehow to say, this is money now, right? This, this used to be just salt or it used to be just be gold, but now it's also money, right? So anything defined has to be defended. Anything defended is aggressible. Anything aggressible is violent. It gets us back to the violence again, right? Because at the end of the day, money is a corruptible instrument. We all know that, right? I mean, we complain about it every day. You can go to whatever millions of websites now reading about inflation and this and that right the reality is the ideas of depreciation amortization are intrinsic are critical to when we have violent based commerce like we've had for thousands of years so um you know basically this is an advanced form of barter with public protocol in the sense that not only are we basically saying okay you know here's a key to the world's strongest clock or keys to the world's strongest clock for example with bitcoin or here keys to the world's strongest processor if it's Ethereum, right? So we have direct utility, or if it's a stable coin, let's say, quote unquote, redeemable, now we can provide that software key, you know, in exchange for a good. And, you know, we know that that is a direct relation to that good or direct relation to that service. So the middle is removed. And in addition, all of the barter records are kept in an incorruptible uh, perfect data integrity format, right? This is something we didn't have in the past, right? So the reason that we've always had to rely on various markers of money, even when they were barter, a lot of times it'd be like a predominant barter marker basically, because we need to ascribe trust to things that we verify. I mean, I can't give a direct recollection because I didn't record it of what I did even 30 minutes ago, exactly. I couldn't recall that back to myself, let alone to you or anyone else. But, you know, we can all agree that, like, these are headphones. <laughs> this is an iPhone, right? <laughs> you want, right? We can agree, like, this is a shirt, right? So we, we 
we can we can say you know we yes like even though you and i can't even trust what we literally just did but we can trust all these third parties that we can have a consensus and that's why i believe we've had to ascribe so much extra third party value because we we can't trust ourselves because we can't trust our own records let alone have others trust us or trust others so we have all of these trust markers all over the place and they're constantly eroding in, in value and you know constantly being stolen because these are our this is our value basically encapsulated in, the, in, in these items these physical and animate objects i think that we're moving away from that model because it no longer serves our commercial needs we need to commerce to socialize to procreate to exist if you read almost every religious text that i've ever read there's thousands of different religions known the one thing that they all have in common to me is the story of commerce everything is about commerce it makes sense we have to commerce to socialize to procreate we have to procreate to survive we have to justify the violence inherent in our commercial systems why we have governments they're forced marketplaces why we have religions to justify the violence of the force in the marketplace the religion the spirituality the forced spirituality so these are items there's a reason we've had them in history whatever people think of them good bad ugly whatever and different they were essential to get here effectively i would argue because so when humanity yeah. had we have trust record keeping right we needed to forgive our violence in order to commerce to exist no yeah i mean that that's a great argument and um well a better way of putting it is it's a super um you know, it's an argument that I haven't heard before that spans through history. So it's a, it's a tough one to just pick up and run with, um, but I'll try. Um, so, you know, I think one question based on this is that when you talk about blockchain, when you talk about crypto and Bitcoin, you're not just talking it about it in a practical kind of rationalist, rationalistic way. You're talking about it as, uh, you're not just talking about it as a store of value or as a, a great technology or as a great elegant solution you're really talking about it as something that is civilizational and historical something that removes some of these uh, trust problems that you've had something that removes the what you see as a violence endemic or or uh, engineered into the very way that we trade and of course i think a lot of hi historians um would would very easily find some evidence to support that um very easily across history, even into the to the current time, obviously. Um, so I think, you know, looking at the past hundred years or so, I wanted to go back to Bretton Woods and, you know, what happened after the, the just before 1944, I think it was, just before the end of the Second World War, when we came up with the Bretton Woods financial system, which was, you know, ostensibly to bring the world close together, the central banking institutions were passed in countries all over the world, the US dollar became the global global reserve currency. And of course, that the US and the Western world were to play a big role in kind of administer, administering and, and monitoring uh, this system. And, and at that time, they had uh, the, the, the best technology certainly to do that. Do you think that as time goes by, um, just as your father worked to change elements of the financial system in America, blockchain and crypto and some of these new DeFi movements are going to slowly dilute and, and Bretton Woods, possibly replace it, and also slowly re replace the way we do commerce and the role of nation states in global commerce. 
Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. I think nation states as really what I would call, you know, forced marketplaces is kind of how I look at them less abstractly, um, I, I think are going to make uh, or, or voluntary marketplaces are going to make these forced marketplaces irrelevant. And I view public protocols like Bitcoin, Ethereum as voluntary marketplaces. In other words, you know, when I go to Dubai, I'm not a resident or a citizen, but I'm still forced to abide by the Dubai and the Emirati laws, or I was just in Finland, right? I was forced to abide by the Finnish laws there effectively, right? So, you know, being able to have freedom in how one wants the commerce and choose voluntarily to enter a marketplace, when one enters that marketplace, all the rules are 100% enforceable by math, and it's all incentive-based, incentive-punishment-based. So if one breaks the rules in public protocol, they simply don't get access to the marketplace. There's no huh. reprisal or retribution yeah. or, you know, okay. time mm. or things taken away from you, right? Um, so it's a voluntary mechanism. And ultimately, again, I, I view our necessity to commerce, you know, really being from our necessity to exist. And so if we want to maximize our existence, we need to maximize our commerce. And I would argue from measures as broad as interest rates being at multi-thousand year lows, which is one of the best data markers we have, even despite all the corruptible history records, simply because there's so many records of interest rates around laying around in old tablets and manuscripts and things. Being at a thousands of years low, interest rates for any, any item, instrument, simply say, how much is someone willing to pay extra today versus tomorrow, basically? How much is someone willing to pay more for that time premium effectively or vice versa, however you want to look at it? But it's a, it's a time pre a preference. And when interest rates are negative, it basically means no one wants that. So, I mean, the only people buying money in, in terms of material bulk are really those that are creating the money, the central banks, the governments. And you know, ultimately, I, I see, you know, a world that, you know, we're going to have to get to world peace here because our commerce relies on it. I mean, Moore's law, flattening of semiconductors every four year, that's been broken. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of, I, I think cloud computing is really susceptible. I mean, our world, this call today is pretty much reliant on one guy at Amazon making the right call. I mean, I almost guarantee Zoom uses Amazon in some way or another indispensably. So, I mean, the reality is, is that if one person, I mean, I think his name is Kilgore, and at, at, at Amazon makes, like, the wrong decision, then, like, we could have, like, massive outages for a while until a bunch of more hardware is basically thrown into all these different server racks. So it, it, it's... um. It's not sustainable. Like we 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 no longer need these pyramidal silos anymore, right? Like we we need to go to mesh networks. We're going from centralized models of commerce to distributed models of commerce. Um, and, and I want to take all of us. Yeah, I want to ask you about distributed computing and some of the things Harrisoft is is working on. I know I keep saying we're going to get to that, but there's just too much good stuff here. So. I, you know, you were talking about the the the, the protocol layer, um, and you were referencing kind of you made this this implicit distinction between the fiat monetary regime and and the the crypto monetary regime. And of course, ultimately, fiat is backed up not by gold, but the monopoly of force by a nation state. 
So, you know, that they've a lot of the dollar has been unpegged from from gold. I think that was in the 70s under Nixon because of the Vietnam War. And increasingly, you know, that the, the power of a currency like the US dollar is backed up by the military might and the monopoly of force of the US government. I think a well-known space entrepreneur in the United States recently said something something similar. He said, you know, if you're looking at capital allocation, um, you know, the difference between me is I, I make a decision based on what will, uh, you know, create the most value and the most ROI. Um, whereas when a government makes a decision, it doesn't necessarily have to come up with the right answer, but it does have, you know, the right to to create problems for anyone who has a problem with it, you know, because the authority of that entity is backed up by force. Whereas, and this is a historical argument, you know, we're not drawing criticisms or making points, we're making a historical analogy on the role of government uh, and how it's connected to value. But in Bitcoin and crypto, um, as you hinted at, you know, Bitcoin is minted through a mathematics, um, through the algorithm. It, there's kind of an alchemy that takes place there, the timestamp that, that happens. And the authority really is the blockchain. It's no state ent- entity. It's, it's decentralized. Do you see this as filtering out from money into all sorts of other systems from, you know, institutions to social contracts to how we run our businesses? Yeah, um, I, I do. I, I think we're going to eclipse money, and I think we're going to have all of these software keys that get access to the utility of the software of these public protocols will be the new currency, and that we're not going to have to think about mentally accounting for all of this. It'll all be automated. Any rote work, any repetitive work, any mem- memorization work, any physical lifting work, anything that doesn't require human creativity basically and like interacting with one another creatively basically in my view is going to be totally eliminated that all of this work will go to machines basically because with trusted software we can have trusted machines part of the big roadblock with ai right now and iot is the software is untrustworthy i mean there's a reason why airdrop only works very selectively you have to basically have it be all permission based i mean if 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 the world had trustworthy software, then my phone or my car or any of my lights or whatever should provide instant routing to everyone else and vice versa. I mean, it should be an entire mesh network. I mean, in today's day and age, we can put computers in light bulbs. You know, why, why aren't we? Because the incentive isn't there. I mean, you probably could have running water, fresh water for about, you know, under $50 billion for everyone in the world. Wouldn't that be a good thing? But why don't we do it? Because the incentive's not there. So uh, as long as the incentives remains violent and it seems like you can disconnect, you know, business with government, but you really can't. And, and you actually look at the tactics that businesses use to win. It's deceptive. They have to be, or else they get out deceived, um, you know, stuffing the channel, phantom sales, fudging KPIs, you know, on a debt basis and equity basis. So you play both markets. I mean, lying about quality of services and goods so you can buy back shares. I mean, these are just a few examples of, you know, successful corporate tactics. So, you know, there's a reason that, you know, Sun Tzu Art of War is such a, who even knows that that guy existed, but the book is very relevant because it describes how you win in Prisoner's Dilemma game theory of kill or be killed. And that's how you win in commerce. And it's how you've won for thousands of years. I mean, 
is it necessarily moral? It depends on one's definition of morality. I mean, it's allowed us to survive, but we've had to basically directly or indirectly always been trying to kill each other because of fear of us being potentially killed by others because of our fear of unable to know one way or another. So we have to default to the negative instead of defaulting to the positive. 100%. So that is a good segue into your fascination with public protocols. So maybe you could explain to our audience what public protocols are, why you think they're so elegant, why simplicity is important, and how they're related to your work at Harrisoft. Thank you. Um, So public protocols is a type of software that effectively was created by Bitcoin's inventors, whoever they were, the the infamous Satoshi Nakamoto. So um, we've had, we're talking on many, 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 you know, dozens, if not hundreds of private protocols right now. So TCP, IP, uh, SIP, I mean, just some examples. Um, and there's probably a lot of other ones that I don't know that Zoom is using and, and that, you know, our telecoms are using to make this communication possible. So protocol software is simply software that's served and secured by a network. So like, you know, we see it in our web browsers, the acronym HTTPS, that P stands for protocol. We see it when we set up our emails, you know, IMAP, for example, or POP, the P's are protocol. So the difference between a private protocol like email or websites, for example, and a public protocol like Bitcoin or Ethereum, for example, is that private protocols require human administrators to grant and remove access to the network whereas public protocols eliminate the need for human beings to be the gatekeepers of access of the utility of the software. Instead, we have these software keys. These cryptocurrencies effectively are like chits or like, you know, biddable, um, you know, credits at an auction or something like that, or basically it's a blind auction. And then if one bids enough relative to the others, typically is how the mechanism works then one gets access to the utility of that public protocol, that software. So um, it's very, very lightweight. So, you know, protocol software is like millions or billions of times lighter than like the operating system software that goes into powering our computer or our phone, for example. And the reason is mainly because network secured software is a perfect form of security um, so long as the network holds. So we can think of like 9-11, right, as, you know, obviously an infamous time. And moreover, for the internet, it was incredibly centralized, really, in New York City at that point. But even still, it's way, way, way more distributed today, the internet. But still, like, really, there was hardly any latency, like, any increase of, like, issue, even when that happened. I mean, the internet ultimately was designed originally as a U.S. military and kind of a, an allied, you know, military application in case of a nuclear war or some kind of cataclysmic war that could eliminate central posts of communication, that there was some kind of communication network yeah. that had redundancy to it. So, you know, we had the basis of this idea of distributed network. Now That's right. It was, it was DARPA, wasn't it? DARPA and Eisenhower and space program. ARPANET, DARPANET, yeah, exactly. And, and you know, so it, it's, it's interesting, you know, again, you can see violence shapes all of our tools, right? So because commerce shapes all of our existence because we have to socialize and how do we socialize to make babies, right? We have to commerce, we have to like buy and sell in some way. 
goods and services from one another or like an attempt to do that basically in some way it's it, it's really fascinating i mean today we have such a it's like so much complexity relative to you know any time in the past right i mean it's always going to get more more uh, segregations of duties and skills and labors and services and goods that are discovered um and 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 and, and i think it's just going to be even more voluminous because once we don't have to keep track of all this accounting and all the 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 mundane of the audits and the bookkeeping and the reconciliations and the you know inventory counting and all of this craziness i mean our life is almost all consumed maybe aside from a few seconds a day from these mundane kind of tasks that were constantly bureaucracy yeah i mean i have, I have to say you know i've lived in the Middle East for a decade. And one of the things that always shocks me whenever I go back to the UK, um, and I always talk about it, is just the the extent of the time I spend on bureaucracy, just being able to live there and do basic things, the amount of time I have to interact and tick boxes and sign forms and, um, you know, jump through hoops, hoops and run errands to do. I mean, you know, I have a, a car in the UK and I'm not sure it's worth it. The amount of, you know, just the amount of stuff I have to do. Um, and it might just be me. I, just, I might, I'm probably, I think I'm very bureaucracy adverse, but that's also something that I like about the tech industry and uh, about the digital markets, you know, that they're quicker and sometimes they feel more, more simple and more fluid. Well, it's a cost, right? I mean, the whole idea is governance, right? The idea is that, you know, we have structures in place and that these structures make our commerce and our socialization and our you know lives better so you know if we no longer need all of the regulation as forms of governance replaced by all of these voluntary rules and public protocols we no longer need all of this i mean basically it's kind of like people not using postal service anymore, right? Or like people not using fax machines anymore. It wasn't like someone mandated no more fax machines. You know, what I mean? it was just, you know, it just we we just outgrew it, right? I mean, and that that's like a small example of a communication innovation, right? But imagine it on like the grandest of scales. Like imagine that, you know, really our entire methodology of commerce just slowly but surely you know, erodes in places like Dubai or, you know, Estonia or El Salvador or wherever, basically that kind of are these new bastions of embracing, you know, their forced marketplaces also succumbing to the realization of their relevancy, basically early, you know, allows all of the individuals that are in that forced marketplace paradoxically to disproportionately benefit from those in other Force marketplaces, right? And so, you know, this is part of this geographic lottery system that we have. I mean, I was even adopted, I was still probably a thousand times better off in terms of my chances of becoming wealthy in this world, you know, being a white guy in Chicago, basically, than being like a black woman in the middle of like Central Africa somewhere, you know, I mean, the realities are so, and, and, and it's inherent, we have to have bigotry. We have to have haves and have nots so long as we have the system of violence and force and money and violence and commerce. And until we remove violence and commerce, which is eliminating money because money is a violent instrument that's a third party proxy of value, we will never have the peace that we earn, that yearn. We will never have the 
the longevity in life that we earn. We'll never have the level of quality of living that we earn. As long as we succumb to this idea of, you know, more violence, more fear, will somehow create like a better manifest destiny for us. It's, it's a fool's errand. I mean, all history shows that. Yeah. And I want to get into very quickly towards the end, asking you about some of the, some of the things Harrisoft is building with that in mind, because I know there's a bit on, on cloud computing, there's a bit on cybersecurity and that's all protocol based. But before we go there, I want to play devil's advocate for a bit because, um, and we've, again, we've done this on some previous episodes, so um, we've had a couple of um, central bankers, I think, on the UAE Tech Podcast, and I've spoken to some um, for the Dubai World Trade Center, who you know very well. And, um, you know, they've made a good case for central bank digital currencies and for, for blockchain-based uh, regulation and AI-based regulation. And they've basically said, you know, if, if we want a grown-up system, if we want a system that's responsible, uh, that is a system that's safe and global and um, that allows our economies to grow, then we need to find new ways to, to use these new technologies in a responsible manner. Um, and CBDCs are obviously very, you know, central bank digital currencies from China. I know the Middle East is looking at them. My country is looking at them. I think your country's looking at them and, and, and also possibly thinking of partnering with some large private sector actors. And then recently, you know, Snowden came out with this story uh, this article saying, you know what, this stuff is real. Um, and it's almost a, a kind of perversion of what these networks were meant to be. And they were meant to be free. They were meant to be distributed and they were meant to be uncontrolled. Instead, what we have is the specter of uh, a, a currency or a coin that you can only spend in a certain way within a certain time on a certain thing. The idea that you can code types of behavior into monetary system, not just the monetary system, but entire systems using the blockchain. And the reason I bring this up is, again, when we did some of our first initial episodes on, on the UA Tech podcast, we, I, I, I forcefully made this debate. So, you know, I let the, 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 the kind of whatever they're called, Bitcoin maximists or digital utopianists talk about the kind of future that they saw ahead. And I'm not knocking them. You know, I think they've proven to some extent what is possible. But as a historian, again, I came back and said, well, you know, if you look through history, can you name a time when any power let the financial destiny out of, you know, through their own volition shift so massively? Surely the existing structures will try and co-opt these movements. Surely we'll have new systems which are possibly as centralized and more authoritarian than the ones that became before. So it's that old, you know, crux between utopianism and, and dystopia. But what do you see as a technical guy? Do you see that, you know, because a lot of what you say is the change is baked in, it's inevitable, and it's leading us towards a less violent, more free world. But isn't there also the case that the opposite can be said? Well, I, I look at it as like, what's the origin of the violence and the origin of violence is fear and you know assuming it's our own violence not some supernatural you know asteroid or something but you know it's it's fear and so we go to war we you know throw pandemics at each other and things like that because we're afraid we're, we're afraid and, and we think that because we can't guarantee that others aren't plotting to kill us that we can't we can't assume we have to assume that they are basically. And so all actions in commerce are based on this theory of kill or be killed. It goes from Hammurabi, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, translated thousands of years ago, to Sun Tzu, Art of War today. 
and and the, and the tactic still holds because the fear comes from the unknown and the unknown comes from the inability to know 100% certainty what someone is hearing listening to receiving um, understanding is actually valid and so trust again is a one or a zero it's binary you can't have 99.99% trust that still means that the model, the system, how we interact with the model and system has to be from a fear basis. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that we probably will see these, you know, stablecoin central banks. And I would actually look at this as a really positive evolution because it should really kind of make the commercial banks underneath the central banks a lot less relevant, which actually takes a lot of pressure off of like credit and counterparty risk on the financial system. So, I think the more that we can sunset and kind of fade instead of this idea of abrupt change, it's a fade. It's a fade into a way like we fade the irrelevancy away of the central bank mechanism. We fade the relevance away of the idea of needing this entire money distribution system. All of that becomes irrelevant basically because we as humans have now found a binary superior way of communicating with each other. And, you know, we, we, we see it even within the money model, evolutions like the ETF, right, from a mutual fund. And now maybe we'll have the ETF go and become crypto wrapper because it's just a more efficient vehicle. It's not like an antagonism or an emotional debate. I mean, crypto maximalists are in the same boat as the central bankers because they both believe that money is the paradigm. And they both ultimately, therefore, believe that violence will continue to be the economic incentive, which... Is, is kind of the legacy view. And that's kind of the view that my parents kind of had, my dad, especially by default, because there wasn't such thing as Bitcoin invented, right? I mean, even for me, I was living in the money paradigm myself when Bitcoin was invented. And even a few years after that, because, you know, we've been building in public protocols for about nine years. So, you know, we're like car, car builders where most people buy cars, right? So, you know, we understand the mechanics of these public protocols very, very well, you know, from how they work technically to how they get adopted or don't get adopted typically. So, um, you know, I, I think it's just kind of peeling back the layers. And sometimes we tend to use too much, not rhetoric, but like wording to, I, they're masks of words. Sometimes we have to say, what is a government really? Like, what does that word really mean? Like kind of deconstructed with more words basically, but try to find some semblance. Well, it's, it's a way we, you know, how we market, you know, we have these rules that we're forced to adhere to and that basically keeps the, 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 the tacticalness of, of the market basically. And that is what allows us to rely and trust the market to at least enough of a degree to interact with it. Even though we don't really trust the players at the market at least all the players can trust that this is a market again, right? This is a cell phone, right? You know, we can trust, we have all this trust in third party things because we can't trust ourselves or each other because we can't prove to ourselves or each other, any of our actions basically conclusively, right? So and if you can't do it conclusively, then it turns out to be a zero because trust again, it, it turns out to be binary. One and zeros. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That was an answer. All right. So to, to, we're getting towards uh, the end of our time here today, but how does Herasoft fit into all of this? And, and what are the various projects you're working on at Herasoft? 
Yeah, no, appreciated. Yeah, we formed Hera about two years ago in February to provide governments and private enterprise with 100% uptime, perfect data integrity, um, ransomware proof solutions. And I'm basically articulating the attributes of public protocols by stacking or layering the protocols together, which is how all software works today commercially. It's not just one thing. It's a series of things that are put together, like a recipe, basically. And so by stacking the layers together, productizing them, we can very light touch go to all of the world's commerce players and light, light touch a signature, for example, into the world's strongest clock. A notary is our first product. Hera stamp is literally just a notary. And this has been something that's been around for a decade, ultimately. You know, there's a famous programmer in Bitcoin called Peter Todd that came up with this. But the reality is, or one of them that discovered the idea of doing this, but the reality is market timing is still so early. Public protocols are 13 years away. Um, you know, we had a Qatari mall use the timestamp in the spring. Um, you know, we have uh, some resellers of the products. We, we've worked um, on some builds also for some other Web3 companies or groups like Casper Labs is one of them. Um, so, you know, we're, we're really just out there to kind of be plumbers and electricians to kind of help provide a trust layer. Um, you know, we have an ID product uh, called Herapass that basically is even too early for market. We still have yet to find market traction. I think it's still a year too early. And ultimately it puts all the ID credentials local. It stores everything kind of like Apple text to talk versus like an Android or uh, Alexa, Amazon, where it goes into the central server. And by doing that, it eliminates all the liability, the hosting cost of the client because all that metadata, all that unique data is all stored locally and then it's pulled with a key instead of having one key that's decrypting an entire database basically, which is how it works now. And databases have been broken into for decades. The only reason that we know about ransomware now is that up until the last six, seven years, the banking system had a monopoly on digital payments, which meant bounties could be frozen. Now bounties can't be frozen and that's why Ransomware went from zero eight years ago, practically to like 20 plus billion today. The only thing that that's changed is the rise of public protocols and the material value of their software keys being used effectively as money today, money substitutes, because we have yet to commercialize public protocols yet. So, you know, we need to speculate. It's essential to our, to our advancement of commerce. Ultimately, we need to speculate and stay curious now I'm excited because we can stay curious in a peaceful way instead of being violently curious all the time. So, um, you know, now we can be peacefully curious all the time, but we're in this weird kind of limbo transitory time when none of us really know how this will play out. You know, can we continue to keep things more peaceful? Can we avoid having some massive violent chasm, you know, by legacy players that are you know, clawing and screaming to, you know, keep their relevancy, but ultimately, you know, the fates are, you know, basically making these legacy ways of violent commerce fade. And so, you know, the players that are in these legacy places are, are feeling, I think, the beginning of their relevancy. And then it's how one takes that, you know, does one at peace with that or does one fight that, you know, and I think that's kind of where we're at right now, the very early stages, you know, because I think there's a realization that public protocols, I mean, it's about, you know, two and a half, three trillion dollar liquidity. I mean, I think the keys of Ethereum are worth more than any bank on the planet today. So 
And again, no commercial use right now of the protocol. So that to me is a very, very bullish, right? That we are right about this future. I mean, 13 years at light speed communication is vastly different than hundreds of years ago for a few years in tulips, right? I mean, even after a few years with the tulips, even with communication being billions of times less efficient than it is today, people still figured out the fraud basically in less than five years, right? So if this were truly like a fraudulent, you know, irrelevant game, Ponzi scam scheme, you know, pure speculation without any benefits, quote unquote, which I don't even believe in, you know, we would have seen Bitcoin and all the other crypto, quote unquote, go to irrelevancy by now. It wouldn't have stuck around this long. I mean, markets are are uh, are fickle. You know, they're they're not uh, they're not here like charities. You know what I mean? I mean, it's violent out there, right? So, you know, if something is legitimately you know considered to be illegitimate, then you know, as soon as people think that, right, it goes right. Once the faith of trust is lost, and you know. An artificial trust world, then the, the the perception of trust is gone, right? So, yeah, and as ever, there's a small group of people who are changing a lot of things uh, relative to their size. Um, Anthem, thank you so much for joining us on the UAE Tech Podcast wow. today. This was awesome, John. An honor. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Sponsor information. The UAE Tech Podcast is distributed by Alboaba Business free of charge. To sponsor a single episode or a series of themed episodes, please contact our editorial team or download a sponsorship press pack. Sponsors receive an article on Alboaba Business, syndication distribution on Alboaba Syndicate, email direct marketing across the region, and brand inclusion across all podcast marketing design, audio, and video formats. Alboaba is not a PR company, and we do retain editorial discretion and quality control as an independent publisher. Companies looking to support a dialogue on technological transformation in the UAE are encouraged to contact our team.